This morning's reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also have those who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Lord, help us, please, to understand what you have to say to us, even if it's tough. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, we're looking at the this terrific passage in Pergamon. So if you've got your Bible, please do uh, open it at Revelation 2. It's the Pergamon, the privilege of persevering as a Christian. Now, the outline of where we're going, it's uh, Pergamon is a very important city, but it has a powerful God. And the faithful people within that city, but... There was a problem with a lethal heresy, and yet the Christians had a glorious future. So let's start away, an important city, Pergamum. It was the capital of that part of the world. Very important, founded 300 BC, and although such a major city, it had become the sort of the Soho of the area, uh, full of debauchery and idolatry is built on an enormous fortress rock it's 50 miles from the sea and you can see how in those days it had control of the the whole of the Caucasus village uh, the um, river that uh, valley along the river now today it's in ruins but the archaeologists know precisely what it used to be like now, the pride of place in this uh, city was the Temple of God. Esculapius was the main god, but they had lots of other temples to the uh, various Caesars. I'm interested, it also had a, a very famous medical school. Uh, Galen, some of you may have heard of, was second century physician, and he was head of the medical school there in Pergamon. It was a major city. 
It contained a massive library that tried to uh, counter and be a rival to the great Egyptian library in, uh, in uh, Alexandria. The, when the uh, head of the Alexandrian uh, library heard about uh, this, uh, this new one up in Pergamon, he was offered the job. But the, uh, he was arrested by Ptolemy, uh, put in prison for this, and in reprisal, he refused to allow papyrus to be exported from Egypt back to Pergamon. But the Pergamon people didn't worry about that. They decided to invent uh, an alternative. And out of this, you've got the Pergamon Charter, which our word parchment comes from. It's a very thin leather, much better than, uh, than the old ways of doing things. Now, these temples in Pergamon had cult prostitutes. They, they, uh, this is partly why it's so debauched. And it's very normal for uh, people in the city to use their services. So it was a, what might be called a very hedonistic city. And yet within it, there are a group of Christians. And as always, Jesus has something he wants to say to them. So we've seen a powerful city, but uh, now we've got a powerful God. I don't know if you noticed that at the beginning of each of these seven letters, the, they all begin, these are the words of him, of the Son of Man, of the Son of God. They are spoken. Now, problems always begin in churches, when they stop listening to what God says in his word, particularly when they're uh, a bit cutting. But note how Jesus describes himself. He has a sharp, double-edged sword, just the same as in, in 116, where Jesus is pictured as a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. As reading last week in my quiet time, Psalm 59. And I was very surprised to see there that one of David's enemies, it says, see what they spew out of their mouths. They spew out swords from their mouths. You know, tough words coming. And we've got to see it like this. We've got a powerful God who has given us his word in the book of Hebrews, we, we see the same idea. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. What's it do? It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It pierces. So Jesus is saying here, his word sorts people out. He sorts us out. It's a symbol of censure and punishment. Jesus is warning those in the church and warning us that when we're tempted to compromise, to compromise with worldliness, to tolerate wickedness, then we've got problems. 
So the sword of the spirit, the word of God, does two things. It promotes a, a conviction of sin. And so leads people, hopefully, to come back to God to be saved. So that they repent of their sin and are converted. That's why the Bible is so tough at times. This is how the word brings us peace, brings us security, by helping us to see where we've gone wrong. But to others, it does make clear that condemnation awaits those people who reject God and his word. The word of God, so it does divide people. It reminds us that some of us are sheep and some are goats. Some are wheat and some are tares. Well, God certainly speaks through his word. This is what this is saying. But there's something else God has, another characteristic. He knows everything that's going on. He knew what the people in Pergamon were doing, just as he knows what you and I are doing, what we're thinking. Notice how he describes Pergamon, where Satan has his throne. Now, what's that mean? Now, the great temple of Aesculapius uh, was there right at the top of this great city. Aesculapius was a, a healing god. Uh, he came, people came from very long distances to uh, experience his healing, to be touched by God's spirit, as they thought. It was taught that God could even raise the dead. Aesculapius could raise the dead. He was actually called Savior and God. Those people who wanted a healing touch from this spirit would spend the night in the temple of Aesculapius. There they had a lot of tame snakes all over the place, and people would want to be touched by one of these wriggling snakes and hope that the touch of the spirit would give them healing. Interesting. Uh, it's been described, Pergamon and the temple of Aesculapius, as the the lords of the ancient world. The emblem of the snake, as you know, still persisted up to this time. It's a very famous medical image. Uh, it symbolizes healing. You know, the Royal Army Medical Corps uses it as their badge, and many other groups do. But for Christians, you can imagine what the snake symbolized. The satanic snake was key to a Pergamon. But there are other meanings. Uh, we've heard it's a very sordid, secular center. Religious orgies were common, uh, all in the name of religion. The goddess Aphrodite, uh, with her cult uh, and her prostitutes, they were terribly common. If you think about it, is it that different to what's going on here when we see what's going on in our nightclubs, seen online and in videos and in books? What's occurring now in our universities? 
now entering into our schools? All this promiscuity being encouraged? That's an interesting phrase where Satan has his throne. Uh, Jesus and his apostles certainly talk that there is a real personal Satan. And he was behind these foul deeds that were going on here. The Bible is very clear that Satan does rule, apparently, in this world. He's got great control. If you can't see that, you're blind. His days, though, are numbered. When the Lord returns, his presence will be completely removed. So, we've got a powerful God. Now we're moving on to, in this city, we've got a faithful people. Jesus knows exactly what happened to Antipas, you see here. There's, we don't know a lot about him. Uh, one of the uh, famous uh, early church writers, Tertullian, he mentions him. And a later writer, so you've got to take it with a pinch of salt, said that he was a bishop or an elder there who was arrested uh, and when Domitian was the emperor. And as a punishment, he was put in a, a big brass bull that was heated till it was red hot. And that's the way he met his end. But all we can be sure of is that the Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that encouraging? Whatever we're going through, the Lord knew that there are many people in Pergamon who remain true to the name of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 13. So even with the fear of death hanging over them, we saw what happened in Smyrna just down the road, they refuse, these Christians, to deny their saviour. They refuse to be traitors. The, the followers of the heathen god Esculapius claimed that their god could heal. They called him saviour and protector. But for the Christians, there's only one healing god who can save and protect us. Well, surely we've got to admire the zeal, the earnestness of these early saints in Pergamon. But today we've got the same. And there's so many people, stories coming out of Iran, Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, Nigeria, China, where today Christians are staying faithful to the Lord Jesus and standing up and talking about him. You know, in, in wartime, in battles, the heroes quite rightly get rewarded by the state. They get a medal or a gong or something. The Lord Jesus will also give great reward to those people who are faithful to him, even when the going's tough. And this is what we're taught here. When everything's going well, when it's all easy, uh, we feel at ease, then we can just drift along. But when the going gets tough, you find you're on your own. Perhaps you're lonely. You lose your job. There are problems. Your partner leaves you. You're short of money. The 
cherished plans that you had have just not come off, come across. Then when the problems are there, the chips are down, then we know where we really stand. Are we faithful to the Lord Jesus? And if you live in, lived in Pergamon, I wonder where you and I would stand then. Would we be faithful or would we go the crowd? The interesting word used here, can you see that? Witness. In those days, it was not easy to talk about Jesus, to talk about him being the only God, him being the Savior. But I guess Antipas would not be silent. That's why they tried to silence him. But if you know the story of Richard Wurmbrandt, he wouldn't be silenced. Even when they, they, they put him in prison, he, he talked to the other prisoners. When they put him in solitary confinement, he talked to the guards about Jesus. John Bunyan, he would not shut up. People need to know that in Jesus alone is salvation. People here were imprisoned and tortured, isolated, just to stop them talking about Jesus. Are we faithful? Uh, before the uh, New Testament times, uh, a witness was a person who had seen or experienced some event. But over the time of the New Testament, the word witness had changed its meaning subtly. It described a person who's willing to suffer and to die to tell people about the Lord Jesus. You know, the, the, the Greek word for witness is martyros. It's a martyr. <laughs> when people uh, translated the modern New Testaments, they've, they've had a problem. How do you translate that Greek word? Do you translate it as a witness or as a martyr? Because the two are linked. You know, Polycarp, uh, he was uh, the Bishop of Smyrna that we had last week. He wasn't willing to be quiet. Right to the end, he said, how can I deny my Savior and Lord? And he was willing to be executed. He was burned to death. Antipas, he also was faithful. The obvious point is that God wants you and I to remain faithful witnesses. There it is, 13. So, we've got a powerful God, we've got a faithful people, but now, a lethal heresy was creeping into the church. Let me uh, illustrate this. It's so easy for us to be deluded. Here's a picture of a, a beautiful girl on the beach, you're passing by. Anything wrong? Next slide. If you go around and see her the right way around, she's utterly repulsive. Her lips and her eyes are upside down. There it is, back again. The original. It's so easy to be deceived, isn't it? Well, that same thing happened. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have a people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So, just like in Corinth, here this church in Pergamon, there were some who were 
teaching and deceiving people. And at first, people couldn't see it. They're so easily seduced. Who is Balaam? Well, if you know your numbers, he was a, a religious prophet in the Old Testament, time of Moses. Uh, he was outwardly, uh, was a professional seer. He was a, a prophet who did it partly because he did very well out of it. He made a profit. Uh, he was quite covenous. He was uh, covetous. He was ambitious. He professed to have a zeal for God, yet it was measured by worldly gain. Now, if you remember the story, Balak, the, son of, the king of Moab, offered Balaam a handsome reward if he'd come and curse the invading Israelites. Uh, it's called the wages of unrighteousness. He was, a, frankly, a hollow hypocrite whose focus and ambition were in this life and not in living for the next one. A bit like perhaps some preachers today. Some people are the most subtle and dangerous enemies of Christ's church. People like that. They are lethal. Uh, St. Augustine called them prophets of the devil. God stopped Balaam from cursing Israel. And we read that Balaam returned home. But it doesn't actually say where the home is. And almost certainly his home was with the Moabites. Because very shortly after that, the Israelites attacked the Moabites. And it says Balaam was killed with them. He was part of that, that group. And he was doing all right from it. But when he wasn't allowed to curse Israel, it seems he used a different strategy to undermine them. And the next verse says in Numbers 25, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So the problem in Pergamon seems to be that some of the Christians were compromising with the worship of false gods. Uh, look at 2.14 in Revelation. They were eating food, sacrificed to these idols. They were committing sexual immorality. It's very interesting that Paul discusses these very same two problems in 1 Corinthians, chapters 5 to 8. Same problems today. Compromise. Do you know there's some recent studies in America that have showed that uh, the sexual behavior of people going to Bible-teaching churches is no different to that of the outside world. What a tragedy. What about these Nicolaitans we've got down here? There's something very interesting I only learned recently, that the word Balaam in Hebrew is made up of two words. It means devour or destroy, and then the people. 
Well, that's what his teaching did. But Nicolaus is very similar in Greek. Nike, we know, that's uh, victory, conquering. And the laos, that's the people, the laity. Conquering the people. These teachings get in and seduce good Bible teaching churches. So these two words are synonymous, mean the same. The Ephesian church, do you remember when we looked at that? It had the same compromises. Look at 2 verse 6. They had Nicolaitans back there. But there they recognized them for what they were. In Clement of Rome, right, wrote about 100 AD, he said these were a great problem in the churches. Compromises. You see, they assume the garb of being Christians, but their private life was very different. They'd go to the temple feasts. They'd indulge in the practices that debase the gospel. They'd even visit cult prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite. You see, they wanted to stay in with the world, but to keep the insurance of being Christian. And the Bible says that's not possible. They wanted to stay in with godless people and forgot the Lord who'd saved them. So it seems the church leaders in Pergamon were tolerating such people, even if you know, privately they disapproved of what was going on. Well, something had to be done. A decision has to be made. Look at verse 16. God says, Repent, therefore. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, the church corporately had to act and get rid of this problem. They must warn these dabblers these dabblers in Christ and dabblers in the world, that they must change or leave the church and leave salvation. Remember what God said to the leaders of his, his people in Ezekiel? Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. If you have friends who are doing things, who claim to be Christians, but are ungodly, do warn them. Well, finally, a glorious future. Listen. It is, wake up. This is important for all of us who claim to be Christians. We must never dabble in our commitment to Christ. We must become overcomers, victors. If we persevere in living for Christ, then we will receive, what does it say here? Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. What's that mean? Well, we know Jesus talked to his disciples about uh, giving them living bread from heaven. That's what manna was. Remember the Israelites were fed in the wilderness, we heard in the prayers, with manna. And Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. 
if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So manna means God sustaining us even through the problems. We can live in close communion with God because of everything he supplies, both now and in eternity. It's interesting, the, the Jews thought that the manna in the uh, ark was never lost, but actually was hidden, they say by Jeremiah, uh, in, the, uh, in Mount Pismo, the, the last mount that Moses was on, never been found. But the same picture, God is going to give an eternal manna to his people. Now what about a white stone given to all overcomers? And we'll get a new heavenly name. Does that excite you? The white stone surely represents the purity that we have because we have Christ's purity given to us. You know, Isaiah 62 says this, the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You'll be called by a new name and that the mouth, that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Now, in those days, a white stone was given uh, to winners of the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games with your name written on it. And that was a great uh, passport in society. It's a bit like today, getting an Olympic gold. Uh, they gave you great privileges. You can get into feasts. You, you were honored. But here, for those who persevere in witnessing for Christ, who are living for Christ, who are overcomers, who are victors, will receive this white stone that will enable us to be admitted to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Isn't this a great privilege that people who are faithful have? But what a warning this sword of the Spirit has. So what do we learn from it? Pergamon still has a powerful God who's in charge. He won't be on the sidelines forever. He has a faithful people, just as God has now. There's a lethal heresy that's creeping into churches, just as happens today. But for those who are overcomers, there's a glorious future. Where are we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us. Please help every one of us here to be clear who the Lord Jesus is and to determine to be faithful, to be witnessing, and to be living the life of, that Jesus wants. And we just thank you that for those who are in Christ, we have this great future. You'll support us, you'll feed us, and we have the privilege of being overcomers in your eyes. For Christ's sake, amen.